Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Mazel Tov. It is uh, the end of the summer, which means I spent a lot of time in Israel, and I have a few reports. Consider this, uh, at least uh, to start off with, consider this to be my latest entry in what is the last thing I heard from a cab driver in Israel. It tells me the following story. A tourist was renting an apartment in Israel, and at the end of the month he needed to get rid of a large bag of garbage. After a long search, he couldn't find any place to throw it, so he went down one of the side streets, figuring he would dump it there. And as the bag was just about to be opened and dumped, he was stopped by an Israeli police officer who said, What are you doing? And the guy said, You know what, I have to throw this stuff away, and I couldn't find any place to do it. And the police said, You can't throw it away there, but follow me. So the police officer leads him to a beautiful area that is covered with idyllic hills of green, pretty flowers and manicured herbs. And here it said the officer, you can dump all the garbage you want here. And the tourist shrugs and he opens up the bag of the garbage and he dumps them right on top of the flowers. And when he's done, he says to the police officer, you know, thank you for giving me a place to throw all this stuff away, but isn't this a garden? And the officer says to him, no, it's the Iranian embassy. I can say, despite the geopolitical temperature, that this past summer my time in Israel felt different. Which is to say that the country had a weird, almost normal feel to it. The big news there at that time was the rise in the cost of tomatoes and the construction that was going to close off the main entrance to Jerusalem for the next three years as they work on their light rail system. So it's not just on Eglinton, my friends. And yes, a few weeks later, we would see two Democratic Congresswomen from the United States being denied entry into the country and all the noise and controversy that went along with it, which, for the record, was completely and utterly avoidable. But if you read the papers in Israel and listened to the news, Interestingly, it really wasn't much news. Yes, of course it was reported and condemnations came from around everywhere to the Netanyahu government for their ridiculous handling of it. But a day or two later, it was off the headlines. Here, we're still talking about it. But in Israel, they've moved past it. First, there is something called Ukrainian Breadgate. And you can Google it after Shabbat. And finally... The country is back to a conversation about the country itself. About its second round of elections in less than a year. And then the more important conversation about the country that is taking place at any time, perhaps since 2006, when then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon decided to unilaterally withdraw from Gaza, uprooting tens of thousands of Israelis who live there. The conversation they're having is the question of what does it exactly, what does it precisely mean when we say that Israel is both democratic and Jewish? That question, when posed to different people, will result in different answers. And actually in people hearing different questions. Some people will only hear the word Jewish, and others will only hear the word democratic. Many will hear both, and leaving everyone unsure about which of the two is greater. 
And the question itself is challenging for North Americans, be us Canadians or Americans, in very large part because we live in countries that have a formal separation of church and state, where there is no national religion, where there is no government-appointed head of church, where there is no religious leader who anoints or crowns the leader of the country. You know, interestingly, the French political philosopher de Tocqueville noted 200 years ago, remember he came from Roman Catholic France, where the head of state was also the head of the church. De Tocqueville noted that he's never accounted a country as religious as America was, which on the surface seems like such a bizarre idea. After all, the freedom of religion and the freedom from religion are bedrocks of the American Bill of Rights, which leads us to wonder, is a country like Canada or America more religious than, say, Iran, which is a theocratic country that forces people not only to observe, but also how to observe their faith, a place where religious law and tradition are, in fact, the laws of the country itself. You see, in a place like Israel, it's even more complicated because Israel is not a theocracy, but a democracy but a democracy that is also a Jewish one. So its national institutions only serve kosher food. Go to any government building or army base, only kosher food. The country's statutory holidays are Jewish holidays. The flag is a symbol of the Talit, the Jewish prayer shawl. Public transportation is closed on Shabbat. Religious students are granted exemptions from army service so long as they continue their religious studies. In Israel, there is no such thing as a civil marriage or a civil divorce. They must both go through the religious courts. And funerals are under the auspices of the religious authorities. Which, which leads us back to where we began. What is Israel after all? Democratic first and then Jewish? Or Jewish and then democratic. The truth is, it's not just our question. It was there from its very beginnings. We have to go back to 1937, when the British, who at the time controlled what was then Palestine, began to investigate how they might be able to get out of it. They believed that a partition plan, in effect separating Jew from Arab on the basis of a land division, would be the best possible way to ensure the safe functioning of the country was to make it two countries, Arab Palestine, Jewish Israel. What the British then did was set up a commission called the Peel Commission. They interviewed Arabs to figure out who they thought might make up the government for Arab Palestine, and then they planned to interview leaders from the various Jewish communities living there to see if they supported the idea as well. And that the idea that the British were going to interview the Jewish communities, that scared the hell out of David Ben-Gurion. Because Ben-Gurion's deep-seated and not unreasonable fear was when the British would come to interview the ultra-Orthodox communities, that they would say that they don't want to be ruled by the Zionists, who they despised. That they didn't want self-determination or statehood or worrying about the halachic the Jewish legal questions of Jews running water pumps and electrical plants and hospitals and policing on Shabbat. The ultra-Orthodox concerns were to live as free as possible 
to live their lives as religiously as they saw fit. And they didn't really believe that God would allow a Jewish state to happen before the Messiah came anyways. But Ben-Gurion feared that if the British heard them say that they, that, that they were Jews who didn't want a Jewish state, that it would torpedo the entire enterprise. So he made a deal with them. In exchange for supporting Jewish autonomy and a Zionist state, that they would be given control over all the religious life of the future country. And they agreed. And the deal was done. In Ben-Gurion's eyes, the exchange was more philosophical than practical. After all, the religious community was small. I mean very small. The founders of the state believed that religion would be a diminishing reality. Zionism, they felt, was more powerful than Judaism. And they cared little for it anyways. In hindsight, everyone was wrong. Ben-Gurion and the social Zionists were wrong about Judaism. The very idea that a political state would eliminate the idea of a religious state of being has been proved not just wrong, but so deeply opposite to what has happened in Israel. And the ultra-Orthodox were wrong to think that we would have to wait for God to deliver our country to us. Obviously, God was waiting for us. And paradoxically, their community has been reaping the rewards of the Zionist efforts that they snickered at and quietly protested. But now both their wrongs are our problems to deal with. Does Israel cease to be Jewish if they lift the ban on public transportation on Shabbat? A ban, by the way, that hurts only the poor and the disabled who disproportionately do not have cars. The rich and the middle class get around just fine on Shabbat if they want. Questions of conversion and marriage and army service are all in the hands of a minority community of Jews in a country that is filled with lots of different kinds of Jews. And this second round of elections that is coming in September was brought about by these issues. The issues of the entrenchment and politicization of religion of the combining of faith with the levers of government, bureaucracy, and power. And Israel is having an intense and long-needed conversation about the role of religion in the country, which is asking just how Jewish and democratic that beautiful country will be after all. And as I looked at the Torah portion for this coming Shabbat, a portion like so much of this fifth and final book of the Torah, that is filled with the demands and fears that were born from what Moses dreaded most. He feared that the people, when given a land and given freedom, that they would abandon the faith that had brought them this far. But what is both interesting and powerful is that Moses, despite these fears, he doesn't implement a theocratic, tyrannical system to enforce fealty and observance. In fact... And this is both an important and nuanced idea. In fact, what Moses does is the exact opposite. He leaves behind a system that has a decentralized authority, a king that has little power and no religious authority, a priestly class that is dependent on the people for their livelihood and not the other way around, a priestly class that tends to religious life but has no political or economic power. In other words... The Judaism that Moses leaves behind is not a Judaism of power, 
but a Judaism without power. And if the very thing you were worried about, if the thought that trembles you the most is the idea that people might walk away from it all when given the chance, why would you build a system like that? Why not make a system that enforces conformity and obedience? Why not? And that's because Moses, our teacher, understood something inherent in the idea of God that is described beautifully by the prophet Eliyahu, by the prophet Elijah, who visits us at all of our most beautiful moments. This story finds Elijah, Eliyahu, on run for his life, pursued by forces looking to silence and kill this voice and prophet of God. Other schools of religious leaders had already been put to death. And Eliyahu believes that he is the last and sole voice left of God. And he runs off into the desert, off to Mount Sinai for safety. And it's there, the story tells us, that God finds him. And God says to him, come out and stand on the mountain. And he does. And God passes before him. And it tells us that there was a great and mighty wind splitting mountains and shattering rocks. But Elijah realizes that God is not in the wind. And that after the wind there was an earthquake. And Elijah saw that God was not in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake there was ash, there was a fire. But God was not in that fire either. And then after all that passed... Elijah realized that God was not in the, in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but that God was a small, still voice that was whispering after it all. What Elijah discovers is that God is not found in power, but God is in the soft, gentle silence of life. The paradox that we discover that Moses teaches us this morning in our Torah portion is that religious life and that God has no body, and God has no voice, and therefore we believe that the beauty of God is found in every voice, that this God who has no hands is found in the loving touch of every hand, and that this God who has no legs is to be found in the caring movements of every person who carries themselves forward to relieve the pain and suffering of even just one other person, which is to say that the more democratic and religiously unshackled Israel becomes, in fact, the more Jewish it will ultimately be. Shabbat Shalom.